reminds me of Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Let's turn to the, or not the gospel, though there is gospel in it, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, I'll be preaching on verses 16 through 18, but I want to read the whole chapter like I did last Lord's Day evening, Ruth 1. Before I read this chapter, let's go to God in prayer. Our great God, we love your gospel. We love the hope that is your gospel. We love the good news of redemption in Jesus Christ and Him alone. We pray that you would help us to see that redemption through this text this evening. Amen. Ruth chapter 1. Hear now the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might, that you might find rest, each of you, in the, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even though I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
As the famous hymn says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. John Newton continues, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." In his hymn, Amazing Grace, Newton reflects on the grace of the hour at which he first believed. Then his thankful heart praises his amazingly gracious God for preserving his life of faith. Near the end of the Christian's life, it is our duty, it is our privilege to recall God's loving care from start to finish. And as we do, we think about the trials, the challenges, the afflictions, and all the heartaches that we've experienced. Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When do those tribulations come upon a convert? Well, the timing differs, of course, as do the nature, the strength, and the duration of the trials. But for one convert, these trials came very early in her life, and even from an unusual source. It is not within our control to say no to our trials. It is not within our control to say no to the God who brings these trials our way. It is our responsibility instead to take these gifts from God and always to take hold of God who is our gift. At the same time, it is God's shepherd and responsibility to use these gifts for His glory and for our good, and it is His responsibility always to take hold of us, to preserve us. What we see in this text, the main point here is that the Lord preserves His people despite temptations to leave Him. Look at me. Look with me at verse 6 again. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so we pick up the story with Naomi's rising from Moab and returning to Israel. And we ask, why did Naomi rise and go? Did she do so in true faith? Is she, the prodigal daughter, finally coming back to her heavenly father? And we cannot be dogmatic about her eternal state before God at this point in the text. There are, however, reasons to challenge the idea that she was, at this point, saved. There's much evidence, actually, to suggest that she likely was not a true believer in Yahweh, in the Lord, at this point. She's too husband-minded to be any heavenly good. Her eyes are on the earth. Verse 12 Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Her hope is in a husband. Her hope is in a husband for herself. Her hope is in husbands for her daughters-in-law. That's where her hope lies. She's too husband-minded to think about heavenly things. She's too bitter-minded as well to be aware of the blessings that come from the covenant. Verse 13 Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Next time we come to Ruth, we'll spend a lot of time on bitterness. She is quite significantly embittered. And so she cannot see the blessings of the covenant of grace. And she is quite strikingly too pagan-minded. Verse 15, and she said, see, she's talking to Ruth here, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
return after your sister-in-law. What's the import? What's the the meaning of that command? Return after your sister-in-law. What does that mean? But go back to her gods. That's where she's going. And so go where she's going. To go with your sister-in-law, Orpah, is to go to the gods of Orpah, the gods of Moab. She's too pagan-minded. Can you imagine a real brother or sister in Christ saying something like that to you when you are experiencing suffering, affliction? Just, just go. Just abandon God. Maybe you've not heard that from a real believer, but you have from a family member or a friend whose vision is so clouded by his sin or whose vision is so clouded by her suffering that the light of God's word has not broken through. Just give up on God. Clearly, he has given up on you. Perhaps he was never even with you in the first place. And when our sights zero in on the earth, when our joy is joined to the pleasures of the earth, we will find ourselves questioning the God who made this earth. We find ourselves challenging the God who moved us by grace into his covenant. But did you notice that these temptations to these women were well-intentioned temptations? In Naomi's mind, that's full of bitterness, blessing would come about in Moab. Blessing in Moab for these daughters-in-law. There is refuge. Her mindset is that there is refuge, that there is rest in another land, in Moab. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law in verse 8, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Go back to your mom's house. In essence, she's saying, stay in Moab and be at rest. It was fruitless for me, but surely it will not be fruitless for you. Go home. And she really meant it. Naomi really did want Orpah and Ruth to find rest for their lives. We shouldn't challenge the sincerity of her desire for these two daughters-in-law to find rest. She suffers from another mistaken conception, that is, that there's refuge and rest in an earthly husband. We already saw that in verse 13. Essentially, she's saying, stay in Moab and be married. Again, I can't help you here. I don't have a husband for you. Even if I got one this very night and then suddenly got pregnant, are you, going to, are you going to wait for my son to grow up, to be of marriageable age, and then you would marry? And then, then you can have a husband and then children? Are you really going to wait that long? No, I'm not going to put you through that. Naomi really did want Orpah and Ruth to find husbands, husbands who would provide for them. She has another mistaken conception that refuge and rest is found in earthly offspring. So, essentially, she's saying, stay in Moab and multiply. Multiply in Moab. Again, I'm too old to have kids now. I'm no longer fruitful. I cannot multiply anymore. If you want to carry on your name, if you want to carry on the name of your dead husband, You must find another husband so that you too can have children. And here again, I cannot help you. Naomi really did want Orpah and Ruth to have quivers full of kiddos. Again, we don't challenge her sincerity. She has also another striking 
misconception that refuge and rest is found in other gods. That's what verse 15 essentially says. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So stay in Moab and be in the presence of the gods of Moab. Ironically, as we saw this morning, one of the gods of Moab is Moloch. And if you know one thing about Moloch, what he's famous for, or rather infamous for, it is child sacrifice. He used the Planned Parenthood in the ancient day. The one, there would be an altar, and it would be a burning altar on which the offerant would place his or her child into the hands of this false god, burning and killing the kid. It's it's an abomination. Surely Naomi knew the false gods of Moab. And yet, here she says, stay in Moab and go return after your sister-in-law. Go to her gods. Go to her people. Naomi really did want Orpah and Ruth to find rest. And wait a minute. In other gods. In the hands of a false god. In the hands of a child-killing god. This is not a very favorable view of Naomi. And that's okay, because there is redemption at the end. Spoiler alert. But the sad irony in all this is that all these temptations are coming from someone who is formerly in the covenant. From someone who knows better. From someone who has even taught her daughters-in-law something of the Lord. After all, how can Orpah and Ruth know anything about the Lord except through Naomi? These temptations are coming from someone who must think that the Lord can bless them, but he can't bless her. So go and be blessed, and I'm just going to go my way. And the application point here is that not all temptations are maliciously made. Her command for them to go back, to stay in Moab, is couched in a benediction. Do you, did you see that in verse 8? May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord bless you. May he make his face shine upon you because you have dealt kindly with me. May he likewise deal kindly with you. What a great benediction. What a great pronouncement of blessing. Naomi acknowledges how loving, how compassionate, how devoted Orpah and Ruth have been to her. And they have. She truly wants these women to be blessed. But you see how her words contradict her words. She pronounces a blessing on them. But if they obey her words, will they be blessed? No. They will be cursed. Sometimes we give incompatible counsel, don't we? We say, you know, if you really want to be happy, and after all, that is God's greatest desire for you, for your happiness, well, all you have to do is divorce that spouse, give up on the marriage, give in to this new one who suddenly appeared in your life. Clearly, God is working out all these details for your happiness. Or to someone who is afraid that she might be gossiping, we say, don't worry, we'll just commit that to prayer. 
to someone who is struggling to take a job that would pull him away on Sunday. We say, wait, you've got to provide for your family, don't you? Don't, don't worry. Take the job. God understands. In all of these and countless other counsels, we wish blessing on others, but through that very counsel, we actually pull them away from true spiritual blessing. Remember the point from last Lord's Day evening. To cut yourself off from the land of blessing is to cut yourself off from the Lord of blessing. To pull away from the means of grace is to pull away from God himself. If those are the ways by which we access God, those are the ways by which we avail ourselves of God's communion, what can you expect but depression if you pull yourself away? What can you expect but folly if you're not availing yourself of the Word of God? Then just resign yourself to the fact that you're going to be a fool the rest of your life. If you don't pray... Do you really have any reason to complain that you don't feel like you are connecting with God? Notice the essence of all these temptations is this. And really, it's probably the essence of all temptations. It's that true blessedness is found outside the covenant. True blessedness is found outside of God. Outside of God himself. That you can be really blessed, you can have the good life, the beautiful life, the honorable life, the truthful life, without God. You don't need the Father, you don't need the Son, you don't need the Spirit, you need someone else or something else. Really, you just need yourself. That's what all temptation is, isn't it? God says, God says no, you can't have this. Well, now God's holding out on you. This mindset is as contradictory as the action of a former Catholic who erected an altar to worship abortion. I don't know if you saw this article. It's recent. And according to an April 18th article from Live Action, which is a pro-life organization, a California church was founded for the sole purpose of worshiping abortion. An L.A. artist named Jackie founded this church, has set up a mass-like service, and even reads aloud from a sermon that is rewritten using Supreme Court language that, would, that once supported abortion. And why did she do this? She created this out of an angry response to the Dobbs-Jackson case and out of a desire to provide a symbol of hope to all who hear and to all who see. How worshiping abortion is a symbol of hope remains unclear, perhaps to all but her. True happiness and real hope are not found in shall sacrifice. Don't know why we would have to say that. True refuge, true rest is found in the land of promise. The church of God, the heavenly Zion. True refuge, true rest is found in the heavenly husband, the Christ of the church, the heavenly groom. True refuge, true rest is found in spiritual offspring, the children of God, the heavenly seed. And true refuge and true rest is found in the one God alone, the God over all gods, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who created, the one who sustained, the one who redeems. It's in him, in him alone. And so what do we say to someone who tells us to go, that is to say to go out of the covenant to be truly blessed? Well, in a word, we say, no. You want me to go? No. 
It's that simple. You just say no. And we see one individual saying no only for a time. Orpah joined with Ruth, and together they told Naomi, no, we're not going to leave you. Orpah was truly tearful at the idea of having to leave Naomi. She loved Naomi. Orpah was truly genuine when she at first said that she would not go, but she would stick with her. Nevertheless, Orpah truly did go away from Naomi. And where did she end up going? She went back home. She went back to her gods. She went back to an unclean land, in a place of unclean people, to a people of unclean lips, to unclean gods who have no interest in blessing her because they do not exist. That is where she returned. And Jesus speaks about this kind of heart in his parable of the sower and the soils in Mark 4. This heart that says no to temptation or that says yes to Jesus just for a time. When the gospel seed is sown on the rocky ground, that rocky heart receives it, and Jesus says, even rejoices over it, gets excited over it. It's new life, it seems, but eventually rejects it because of the difficulty of endurance, because of the trials. And if Orpah is going to be committed to Naomi, she'd have a hard time. She'd have few prospects. She doesn't know exactly what she's getting herself into. She doesn't know what her future holds. She might die along the way to Bethlehem. She might not find a husband. And she's a Moabitess, for crying out loud. What Israelite is going to, going to marry her? And so, she'd say, okay, I was faithful to you for a little while, but really there's nothing legally that's tying us forevermore. So we'll just break ties. I'll go back to my God. I'll go back to my people, and I wish you well, Naomi. Of course, all this was said with tears. There are those who say yes to Jesus for a time, who are formally in the covenant, who are externally in the covenant, who make that profession of faith, and to perhaps many, if not all of us, it seems like a credible profession of faith, and yet they end up defecting. They end up leaving the God that they once confessed. They do not persevere to the end. They say this Christian life is just too hard. The pain that I experience because I've, I've picked up this cross is just too painful. I can't handle it anymore. It's too much suffering. I want the pleasures of the world. I don't want all the heartache. I don't want all the, the headache that comes with following Jesus. I mean, I have to have faith for crying out loud. And it's difficult. I can't see him. So eventually, they cash in their chips and they go home. They say no for a time. They say yes only for a time. But we have here in verse 16, someone who says no for all time and eternity. No to that temptation to go and be blessed in some other way than in the covenant of grace. Verse 16, she says, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She is saying to Naomi, don't you tempt me to leave you. Don't you dare urge me to leave. She's always clinging. Ruth says, I will never stop clinging to you. Orpah, she kissed Naomi. And that was genuine. Genuine. 
Now it's sincere. But it's just for a time. But Ruth clung to Naomi. And what did Judas do? Judas kissed Jesus. He seemed to be a follower of Christ, didn't he? But the others, in time, they demonstrated that they clung to the Christ. They did not let go. We must never be going away from the Christ, but always clinging to Jesus, always clinging to him, having an all-in allegiance, a full loyalty. That's what Ruth does. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, they're my people. Your God, my God. I'm going to die and be buried with you. Come what may, I'm in. I'm going to see this to the end. So don't you dare urge me to leave you. I'm hanging on. One of the words that one of my sons loves to say a lot is never, never. He shouts out. Doesn't matter what I ask him. Doesn't matter what we say. That's his response. Will we cheer for the Dodgers? Never. And he's got that one right. Do you want to play with your brother? Never. Do you want green beans? Never. It doesn't matter. This is his phase. Doesn't matter what it it is. The phase is just stuck in his head. Never. Not going to happen. I thought, well, what an attitude to have whenever temptations come our way. May our nevers tempted to temptation never be only a phase, only for a time, but for all time and eternity. Shall we leave Christ? Never. Never must always be our position. It must always be our response. As the temptation comes from without, from the devil, as the temptation comes from within, no, no, no. Never will I give in to that because Christ is better. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. He is my God. He called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And this temptation looks like it is full of light, but it is not. It is darkness. It is death. Never. Ruth seals her all in allegiance with an oath of self-malediction. Malediction is just a curse. Verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. As the psalmist says in Psalm 15, she swears to her own hurt. Ruth does not know the future. She does not know how Naomi will be received when Naomi returns. She doesn't know how she herself will be received. She doesn't know if they're going to die along the way. She doesn't know any of that. Will she have a husband? Who knows? If she has a husband, will they have children? Who knows? Her future, as far as she's concerned, is uncertain. It is unknown. Yet, I will die with you. I will be buried with you. And if I don't, May the worst thing that ever could happen, happen to me. And more also, if I fail to keep my vow to be with you, I will always cling to you. And what does she do here but follow her Father in heaven? God, who seals his covenants with oaths of self-malediction. Just 
Just consider the, the covenant that God makes with Noah, with the rainbow. That word is, is for the military bow, that weapon. We talked about this in team group. The, the bow spans the sky. You can see that, that the arrow would be pointed heavenward. It is as if God is saying, if I do not keep my covenant with you and all your offering, all of creation, Noah, may I be thrusted through with a divine arrow. May I die. And he says something similar to Abram in Genesis 15. You recall that great episode when Abram prepares the sacrifice. He has these animals cut up in a row. And God puts Abram to sleep showing that he is passive in all of this. And God, as a, a smoking pot and a flaming torch, passes through these cut-up animal pieces. He is saying to Abram, may I be cut up like these animal pieces if I do not fulfill every jot and tittle of my promise to you. I am your shield. I am your reward. And is this not what Christ does? By taking the curse upon himself for us. Christ, our circumcision, Christ who was cut off that we might be brought in. Christ that was cursed that we might be blessed. He seals our salvation with the shedding of his blood. And this is not what is this not the allegiance that we affirm when we take our vows? We say, I always confess I'm a sinner. I always confess that I'm in need of salvation. When you vow that first vow, you're not saying, I'm only a sinner right now, and then in a few weeks or maybe a couple months when I get my act together, I'm not going to be a sinner. Don't say that. You're say, well, once I mature, you know, 50 years of being a, a Christian, I won't need salvation. No, I need salvation now. And the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment, I always confess that I'm a sinner. I always confess that I need salvation. I always confess, I always believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I always rest on Him. I don't need to rest on Him just on Sunday and the Lord's Day. I need to rest on Him Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and back again all of my life. I always need to rest on Him. This is not what you affirm. I always resolve and promise to depend on the Holy Spirit's work in my life. If I'm going to endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ, I need that Spirit. I need the one who indwells me, who empowers me, who purifies me, who unifies me. I need the one who is my seal, the one who brings, who seals that redemption in Christ. I need him every moment of the day. I always promise to, to support Christ's mission for the church. If Christ loved the church so much that he gave his life for her, he shed his own blood for her, I want to be devoted to the church as well. I always submit to Christ's government and discipline and study its purity and peace. Christ is the head of the church. Christ has given the church officers. Christ has given the church teachers, elders, and deacons. And Christ has given the church many different body parts in the local expression of the church. And I must always submit to that God-ordained, Christ-instituted government and the way that he disciplines me and the rest. I always want to submit. I always want to promise. I always want to resolve. I always want to believe. I always want to confess. I am all in. 
ones. Don't listen to any of those voices that seek your defection from the Lord, that seek to cause you to wander from your good shepherd. If you're familiar with the Scottish anti-slavery movement in the 1800s, then you've likely heard of a man named James Milligan. He was a regular preacher who toured towns in the north so he would speak against slavery. And when he was 16 years old, he found, or he saw a friend of his, a cook in the British Army. He, he watched this man receive 500 lashes for the horrific crime of having cooking flour smudged on his uniform at inspection. Can you imagine how, how disobedient he must have been, this cook, to have cooking flour on his uniform? smudged a little bit. Preposterous, isn't it? That was sarcasm. It was then that Milligan made a vow to oppose the whip in all of its forms. When he became a pastor, he preached powerfully against slavery. When, one evening he was in a town in New Hampshire, he denounced slavery as sin. He had been used to rotten eggs being thrown at him, and he was unfazed by the hostility. When he was preaching, he could hear voices in the audience yelling, Get the tar ready! And you've just earned yourself a coat of tar and feathers. And he courageously cried out, Hear me out! If you will only pay attention until the end, I will help pay for the tar and the feathers. What a bold man. And they mocked him, but they let him speak. They let him finish the message. He didn't don the tar, the tar and feathers that night. The next morning, he shared a stagecoach with one of his listeners, a pro-slavery Democratic congressman. The congressman, Franklin Pierce, said, I heard your address last evening. I must say, I admire your presence of mind when the issue of tar and feathers was raised. I have no doubt that you would have received the ornamental coat, which you richly deserved, but you appeared too willing. So this man thought that Milligan deserved to wear the tar and feathers that night. But apparently, he wanted it too much. <laughs> he was too willing. He was okay to count the cost. He would gladly wear tar and feathers. He would gladly, gladly be afflicted if it meant that they could hear a message that denounced their evil act of slavery. Such was the man's resolve to godliness. Such was the man's resolve to God, devoted to God himself. But sadly, as we see at the end of this section, not all godliness is received well, even by those who are externally or formally in the covenant. Verse 18 says, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. There is actually implied hostility in this silence. Literally, it says, she ceased to speak to her. Naomi ceased to speak to Ruth. And some, some commentators go so far as to say this of Naomi, with sinking feeling and sudden weariness, Naomi knew that she would be stuck with her. Now, I think that is likely too negative a portrayal of Naomi. Nevertheless, Naomi backs off, and she stops trying to convince Ruth to leave her side. Why? Because Ruth is convicted. Because Ruth is determined. She is devoted. She will always cling to Naomi. Moab is not her home anymore. Its gods are not her gods. She has changed loyalties. 
what follows then is silent treatment as these two ladies travel from Moab to Judah. You just picture them taking that journey in silence as Naomi refuses to speak with Ruth. Her faith, Ruth's faith, is Gentile provocation. Here we have the unclean but godly Ruth provoking the clean but ungodly Naomi. The Gentile provoking the Jew. The Gentile, full of grace, full of loyalty, wisdom, devotion, stirring up Naomi, hopefully, to love and faith and good deeds. Romans 11.11 speaks of this as the Lord is, through Ruth, anticipating the role of the Gentile church in this new age. Romans 11.11 says, through their trespass, that is, through the sin of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So we ask the question, will the Lord use Naomi's jealousy? Will the Lord use Naomi's bitterness for her good? Ruth has learned Naomi's lesson before Naomi has. Ruth knows grace. Ruth knows God. And so grace here is not just for the Gentile, but for the Jew as well. You see what I did there? Normally it said, grace is for the Jew and the Gentile. But here, grace is featured in the life of the Gentile. Will this Jew, Naomi, accept it? Will the one who is formerly in Israel receive the God of Israel? Well, the real question is, will we? Whether Naomi does or doesn't, spoiler alert, she does, really is immaterial for you and for me. The question really is for us, will we accept this Lord? Will we find true blessedness, true redemption, true life, true hope, in the Lord and the Lord alone. God guides his people with his grace, even without the mention of repentance. Verse 6, again, says, She, Naomi, had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's why she returns. She heard something that the Lord was doing. But nowhere in this text do you see anything about Israel repenting. Why did the Lord visit the people with his food again? As, we, as, we, as we've been seeing in Judges, it's not because the people's repentance just couldn't be ignored. That God just had to bless them. That their lives were so stellar, outstanding, model citizens. The church's contrition always leaves something to be desired. We never repent perfectly. We never follow God perfectly. But the Lord leads his people with his grace, even knowing, especially knowing, that they are, we are, works in progress. James Ferris graduated from South Carolina College in 1816. He became the principal of Pendleton Academy, a school that educated many future congressmen and legislators. This man taught well. He saved up his money for six years and was able to save two $1,000, which in the 1800s is a good chunk of change there. 
and he resigned from teaching. He began studying theology and was soon licensed to preach the gospel. Troubled by the miserable condition of the slaves, he bought one. He bought one to set him free. He wanted to free the man. He bought a slave by the name of Isaac. It's a good name, isn't it? Isaac for $600. In 1825, Ferris gave Isaac his freedom in Philadelphia, and he set Isaac up with an employer. Isaac, however, did not do well in the city, and his employer soon caught him in bed with a white servant girl. Moreover, Isaac led a very lazy life. And when James Ferris heard the conduct of his former slave, he wrote this, I'm not disappointed. It was not because I thought him an honest and deserving man that I brought him here. It was to do my duty, and I hope I have done it in this particular. He didn't care about the conduct of the slave's life as a condition to set him free. He abominated the practice of slavery, and he thought all of these slaves should be set free. And if he could set any of them free, he will, irrespective of their commitments, regardless of their devotion to the Lord, regardless of their morality. Of course, he would prefer that they would follow the Lord in all their ways. And that was not the primary criterion. It was, this is a good thing to set this man free. Slavery is an evil, and it must be abominated, it must be rejected. And so the man goes on to change the law, and goes on to set more and more slaves free. Dear ones, the Lord doesn't save you. He doesn't set you free because you have all of life intact. He doesn't wait for you to get your act together. He doesn't say, well, look how honest that man is. Look how deserving she is. Do you know how reputable her reputation is, how honorable her reputation is with her co-workers? He doesn't take any of that into account. What he sees is someone who is dead in his trespasses and sins. Someone who is wallowing in her blood. Someone who is without hope. And he saves. He redeems. He sets us free because it is his covenantal duty. Because he keeps his promises. Every last promise to his elect he keeps. And no one not even you, will afford the fulfillment of his grace. Thus, grace aboundeth. Let's pray. A gracious God, your grace truly does amaze us. We really are undeserving creatures, miserable without you, but full of hope with you. And we thank you that you have redeemed us. We thank you that not only have you redeemed us, but you will preserve us. You will continue to work grace into our hearts that we might be continually loyal to you, faithful to you. We thank you for this great work and we pray that you would continue to do that work in us. Help us, Lord, to cling to you all the days of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.